Welcome to the Reunion Church Podcast. We're a community following Jesus, seeking the good of our city. We hope today's teaching is both challenging and encouraging. If we could be a resource to you on your spiritual journey, don't hesitate to reach out via our website at reunionnyc.com. Today's teaching text comes from Matthew 28, verses 16 and 20. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Abby. Let's pray. So, Lord, I love you, and um, such a joy to, to be here today, to pay attention to you, to be reminded of your grace and your truth. I, I pray that as we look at this, this passage, this commissioning that you have for us, I, I pray, God, that um, what we have not would you give us, what we know not would you teach us, and what we are not would you make us by your grace. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so if you, um, if you have a Bible uh, today, I, it would be great to get it out. Even if it's on your phone, um, you can uh, take that out. Um, it might be helpful looking at this passage. So what, what I want to do is I want to look at this passage in Matthew chapter uh, 28. I want to like roll around in it um, and get its sort of ideas on us and into us, whatever. And then I want to look at uh, a couple other passages as we wrap up this Good News Gospel series today, really um, as an invitation to participate in the gospel. That's, that's what we're calling today, um, participating in the gospel. So all fall, we've been talking about what is, the, what is the heart, what is the core of the Christian faith? And we said that it's the gospel. And I won't, I won't spend like, you know, 10, 15 minutes like recapping where we've been. Um, I'll just give you this definition of the gospel. It's like maybe like bare bones, simplified. This is what the gospel is. So it's unconditional love to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. Right? So it's unconditional. There's love for you without dividing walls, barriers, stipulations, or constraints. It's unconditional, right? And, and maybe you would just think for a second, what is it that my heart so deeply longs for? Right? And maybe you get practical and say, that job, that person, you know, that thing. And, and, and actually what it is is like, no, it's actually the thing that you so long for is unconditional love. And we're saying that the gospel is actually an invitation into that. So, to an, sorry, you're finding out some truth about yourself today, an undeserving person, right? We don't earn it. We don't warrant um, this type of unconditional love in our condition. And then the last part, an unobligated giver does this to you. God doesn't have to give this to you, right? But in his grace, he does. And so this is the good news gospel that we've been drawn into. And today what I want to submit to you is that um, this is actually something that as you're drawn into it, it invites you into participation. It's not really an option. As you take this in and say, I, I choose to believe this, you can wrestle with that. That's fine. But as you're drawn into it, it asks something of you. And that's why this passage is called the Great Commission. So this is the last words of Jesus in Matthew's gospel. Um, you can sort of read it as like a last will and testament of a person, um, parting words, right? Jesus, 
but, but Jesus is alive, so you get to decide what it is, I guess, because he's very much alive. He's not dead, um, so you figure that out. Um, so Jesus has just risen from the dead in, earlier in chapter 28, and then the book of Corinthians actually tells us that um, Jesus was on earth from resurrection to ascension back to heaven, like on this earth, for 40 days. And um, Corinthians says that he appeared to his disciples, and then um, it's actually telling you like numerical numbers. It's, it's, it's saying, this is actually what happened. He appeared to 500 as a way of saying, this is what Jesus did in time in history. And before he meets back up with them, um, he says, I want you to meet me in Galilee. I find that little note um, maybe just very real. It says the 11 disciples, meaning what? The lost one, right? Like one, one didn't quite make it. And so they get back to um, Galilee, and then this is what it says. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. They worshipped him, but some doubted. And I'm just so grateful that doubt is included in Jesus' commissioning, right? Jesus is, is sending them out on a mission. He, he's handing them this, this thing that they're supposed to do. But the text acknowledges that some people are still struggling or wrestling. And I don't read it as a, as a group worshipped him and a group doubted. I, I don't read it like that. I, I read it as they worshipped him and some of them doubted. Some of this group that were participating in worshipping him doubted. Meaning, worship and doubt are not mutually exclusive. And I guess what... Um, I guess what, what I want to acknowledge in a, in a room like this, I think this is a really good place to, to start in this text, is that there are doubts in this room. There are intellectual holdups to faith in the person of Jesus. And, and I'm not, actually, I'm not, I'm not even here to like solve those or like, you know, try and like point by point like fix that or argue with you about that. I just actually think it's good to just leave that there in some ways. To say that um, maybe you would say, you know, I actually just doubt that God is good. Like, I, I, I guess in, in one sense I believe that he's real, but like good, I don't know about that. Like, I've lived way too much life, um, I've suffered, and I have too many unanswered questions that have led me to doubt. Or maybe you'd say, the thing that I actually doubt is how this thing is relevant in our time and space. Like, I'll, I'll sit here and I'll listen to you, guy, but I don't, I don't really know about, like, everything you have to say. I can, I can go to a point with you, and I, I just respond to you and say, I, I actually don't really feel the conviction to, like, convince you of anything today. But, like, actually what I want to do is sort of put this person of Jesus out here and say, like, doubt is real. Like, I, I have them. And... Is it possible that doubt is useful? Is it possible that doubt is useful? Um, I was reading a book recently by um, a Yale professor named Christian Wyman. Um, it's a great book. Um, it's called My Bright Abyss. It's a, a poetic exploration of faith. Um, and, and in it, he talks a lot about doubt, um, but he talks about um, how, how we as modern people approach faith, religion, and, and these sorts of things. And he talks about innocence. And I want to share this with you. He says, innocence for the believer remains the only condition in which intellectual truth can occur, and wonder is the precondition for all wisdom. And I share this with you because I, I, I love this moment where the disciples are coming to see Jesus, and they're worshiping. I, I, I can just imagine this moment is like, I don't even know what to believe. Like, this is not computing in my, in my brain, in my intellect. I, I don't even know how I grasp this. All I can do is be awed. Um, the word that comes to mind maybe is like enchantment. 
right? To like see the world fresh and innocent. And so maybe that would be my, my invitation to you this morning is if you do have doubts, like could you come with some wonder? Like what if, what if doubt is actually like a, a sort of faith seeking an understanding and our curiosities can, like Christian Wyman is saying, our, our curiosities can actually lead us to a form of wisdom. So that was a, that was a free bit today. Um, Jesus gathers his disciples. What does he say? He has something for them. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So Jesus says, go. I want you to be a going people. And some, some scholars actually say that um, the phrase go is like a as you go. It doesn't mean like move to Africa. It means like, hey, in your daily going, here's what I want you to do. And then most scholars also point out the, this big word all. Um, the, the writer in Jesus, you know, the, the writer is, you know, taking in what Jesus said. So one of them is really emphasizing this idea of all. Um, there's actually four alls in the passage. He says, Jesus says, I have all the authority. What does it mean when someone has the authority? It means Jesus is kind of saying, like, listen up, guys, I'm the boss, right? Like, there's no getting around it. He's saying, I resurrected from the dead. My father has given me uh, authority. Um, but the brilliant thing about Jesus and authority is that Jesus never leverages his authority for himself. And so he's, he's the one that's actually allowed to say, I am the boss, because he's always giving everything away. He's giving his life away, right? And so he says, so I'm the boss, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to all nations, meaning that um, the Christian faith is culturally universal, cross-cultural, multi-ethnic, um, moving across dividing lines of race and class and gender. And, and that's very much so seen in um, the church growth in our moment where um, the church is growing at an astronomical rate in the southern hemisphere of our world, all nations. And then what do you say? To communicate all his teaching. And I love the emphasis here. It's not just teaching, but it's actually obedience. He's like, actually what I want you to do is I want you to teach people obedience to me and what I have to say. And then what does it say? Empowered by his presence all the time. He says, I will be with you. You're not alone in the process, right? I'll be your mentor. In John chapter 20, um, Jesus just says it a little bit differently as he leaves. He says, peace I leave with you. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you, right? Jesus is saying, I came from God the Father, and I want you to, to, to do what I've been doing. I'm giving you a message, this good news about Jesus. It's rooted in what he came to do on the earth. And I want you to take this message. I'm going to put you on a mission to tell people about this, to share this good news, to participate with me in the gospel, this mission, so this message, mission. Go, make disciples, baptize, teach. And then what do you say? I'm going to be your mentor. Like, I'm, going to, I'm going to walk with you on it. And my question is, is this what the church is doing? Is this what our church is doing? God has a mission, and God's mission actually needs the church, right? That's like his, that's like his vision. That's what he's telling us. Um, here's the great thinker, Dallas Willard. He says, the great issue facing the world today with all its heartbreaking needs is whether those who by profession or culture are identified as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, and practitioners of Jesus Christ steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of the human existence. 
Will we become students, apprentices of the master teacher, Jesus? That's the question. And um, the word disciple is really thrown a lot, uh, around a lot. And ultimately, I do think it means to follow Jesus. But in the original language, the, the Greek is mathetes. And it simply means learner. Will we commit ourselves as followers of Jesus to do the things that he said because he's our master, he's our teacher? Right? I don't want to be overly simplistic about it. I think a lot of times, um, you know, we come, to, we come with big questions about faith, and, um, and we, we're really looking for empathy and care, and that's it's very real. But sometimes it's the, the, the answer to the question is because Jesus said so. Like, I, I, I don't mean to be trite in that way, but sometimes it is. Like, um, somebody asked me recently, like, well, I believe all this, but why should I be baptized? Well, you should be baptized because Jesus just told you to. So if you really believe what, who, that Jesus is who he says he is, and he's going to do all the things he promised to do, then do what he says, which is to get baptized. And I said it much nicer than that, I promise. To me, this whole passage hinges on a word. And I'm not like a good grammar person. I know you guys are in here. Um, but the word is therefore, right? So all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore, and then he gives the instructions, right? And um, what's the phrase about therefore? Anybody? It's like, what is this therefore or something like that? Rachel, help me. You should know this, all right? <laughs> okay, so anyway, forget that. I'm, no grammar lessons for me today. Um, and so I, I think that we're therefore is, um, we think of it in the Bible in chunks, right? But don't forget, this is the last part of the book of Matthew. I think that therefore is from the whole book, like Matthew chapter 1 leading on. And I think what the, the writer is trying to say, or Jesus is trying to say, we can, we can say that. What Jesus is trying to say is, hey, all these things, the lineage of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the things that Jesus did, taught, said, healed people, because of all of that, therefore, here's what I want you to do. I want you to live in a specific way. And so what I think he's ultimately saying is, Here's how you participate in the kingdom of God. Jesus came to bring the, the rule and the reign of God, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to live into who he wants you to be. And so maybe the good question would be like, tell me then what to do. How do I live in participation in the kingdom? So I want to say, I want to say one broad thing here, and then I want to say two specifics. Um, and the first one um, it just needs a little framing. This is called, um, um, will you hit the next slide? I'm trying to think. I'm trying to remember. Yeah. Christ and culture. So before we can say, I'm supposed to do this thing, I'm supposed to do this thing, um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take Jesus at his word and I'm going to do the things that he says, I think we need to think about how it is that we as people, as individuals, engage in the broader culture. And um, as, as I walk through this, I want you to be thinking about for a second, um, possibly your religious upbringing. Um, I want you to think about um, the way you exist as a person in your workplace, and really be asking, what does faithful, how do I say this, what does faithful Christian engagement look like? And this is a spectrum, um, and I love this because there's no right or wrong. This is uh, from a book by Richard Niebuhr, um, and it's called Christ and, Christ and Culture. This is how we engage the world. And so the first one there on the left is that um, some people would say, this is how Christ and culture are to be engaged um, together. And the first one is Christ against culture. And so Christians should um, make a radical break from the culture at large, right? Um, culture outside of the church is seen as corrupt and beyond repair. And if you're really like a pure Christian, then you actually just take like a separation 
from the, the, the culture at large, right? And so it's a, a separatist ideology, um, maybe like think of like maybe an Amish community as someone who said, I'm not going to participate in the, the culture at large. We do this. We don't do that. We watch this. We don't watch that. Or if you're Amish, I guess you watch nothing. I don't really know how that all works. But um, in presenting this information, remember, I'm not, I'm not saying these are, these are right or wrong, but they're, they're steps and ways of, of engaging in, in culture. The next one is that Christ and culture are in paradox. And so Christians live in the world, but are sort of oblivious to it because they rest on their own tradition and we hold faith while we wait for God's kingdom. And so it's, it's a step closer, maybe, to cultural engagement, but there's still a separation there. Um, maybe if you grew up in a sort of like fundamentalist background, um, you were like, I don't do that, right? That's not really our, that's not really our way of, of engaging. And a note about these first two is that they're... Um, they look at human culture and, and basically say, it's bad. Like, that's, that's not for us, right? The next one is that Christ is the transformer of culture. So again, a step in the other directions, right? That Christians should try, you know, to, to, to convert or redeem parts of culture, right? There are things that are in the culture that we should actually engage in. So there's a little bit more engagement, but there's still a sort of like bending towards our thing, Right? The next one is Christ above culture, right? Um, culture here is seen as basically good, but the goal of engagement is to say um, Christ is actually above the culture at large, and it's beginning to try and synthesize um, the two. And um, in the book, Niebuhr notes that this model can actually lead to like a form of institutionalized um, like Christianity. Um, and he actually has, he says it more cynical. He says that it leads to institutionalized Christianity through materialistic expressions, meaning like megachurch. Right, and so there's like a way of engaging that you'd say Christ is above the culture, but we're gonna take like the cultural pr cultural principles and start to like embed them in. And then the last one is this, and this isn't this ultimately this isn't the right one. I'm just presenting this Christ of culture that Christians find in Christ the high ideals for their cultural life and values. And so we say that's like that's the standard, and the culture should mesh with that. And I think this framework is um, super helpful, especially for those of you who grew up like in like a Christian home, and you know even maybe now you're sort of thinking, how do how do I relate my current faith to the faith of my childhood, and how does that how does that begin to um, relate? And I, that's really important to do that sort of internal work because we're talking about what it looks like to live as a Christian in our workplace, to participate in the day to day in our neighborhoods and um, with our friends. So that's the broad thing I want to say. Let me say two things here um, specifically. I want to talk about having a peculiar presence. Having a peculiar presence, um, and I got this little cheeky phrase here, to live a questionable life. Um, here's what Paul says. He says, devote yourself to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Right, so this is good. Pray, right? If you, if you really want to participate in the life of Jesus and his kingdom, then you're going to pray, right? Then he says, and pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I'm in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Let me pause right there. And so Paul is saying um, to this church, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pray for me. Pray for me that I have a lot of opportunities to tell people about Jesus. Would you pray that I would have a lot, um, when these opportunities to tell people about Jesus arise, that I would actually do so with a bunch of clarity. 
Another note, I didn't say this before. Um, Colossians, um, Paul is writing this letter from prison. If I'm writing from prison, I say, get me out, right? Paul is amazing. He's like, here's what I want you to do. I know I'm in prison. Pray for my message. Pray for my chances. Pray for my boldness and pray for my clarity, right? Paul's saying, I have this inner compulsion to tell people about Jesus, and I have to do this. And the reason is, is because Paul clearly has the spiritual gift of evangelism, right? That is his um, primary spiritual gifting. Um, by the way, just a, a word of, uh, of clarity, I actually have that same gifting. Um, my, my gifting, um, as I've done like tests, is not um, teacher, it's actually evangelist. Thinking about the not here yet, right? Um, evangelism in the Bible, um, it gets a bad rap in our modern culture, but the word evangelism actually just, um, right in the middle of it, the root of it is um, eongelion, which is um, to give someone good news, right? It's, that's, that's all it ultimately means, is to give someone um, to good news. And so Paul says, here's what I want you to do. I have the gift of evangelism. I want you to pray for me. And, and I was thinking about it this week. I was like, I need to invite more people to pray for me. I really feel like this is my, uh, my work. I, I feel like it's the thing my heart so burns for. I want more opportunities to share. I want more opportunities to speak clearly. And I, there are moments where I need to be more clear and more bold. But one of the things I find interesting about this passage is, why after verse 4 doesn't Paul say, and I will pray for you too? He says, I want you to pray that I have, I, that I, that I have clarity, that I have the message in me. But he doesn't do that. And some scholars, and I was reading a lot this week about this, is think that Paul doesn't do that because Paul doesn't think we're all evangelists in that sense. And I don't think, um, I don't think Paul is actually saying that each of us should be going to Washington Square Park and walking around and saying, hey, do you know about Jesus? And like handing out tracts to people, you know? Um, which, which in one sense may relieve a lot of guilt for some of you in the room who say, you know, I'm just... I know that I'm supposed to be doing this, but I'm not very good at it, right? But what does he tell them, right? He says, here's what I want you to do. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. So Paul says, Here, here's what I want you to do. For the Pauls of the world, pray for them, right? If the gift is evangelism inside of, of their heart, it's Pray for that person, but for the other people, which is probably a lot more people, the primary mode of telling people about Jesus is through a relationship with a friend and creating the type of curiosity that people would be drawn into you. And so you're saying, Russell, are you saying that we shouldn't do evangelism? Like we shouldn't be telling people about Jesus? No, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying for some people, it's actually a spiritual gift, and they should do that. They should go to Washington Square Park and hand those things out, and they should preach, and they should stand up and be bold in their faith and have more and more opportunities. For others, though, we should be ready to answer people's questions about Jesus. Um, Peter says it like this, a little bit different way. He says, always be prepared. First uh, Peter uh, 3.15, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. And one of the things I love about this, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone about all the things Jesus didn't say. No. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone about everything that says in the Old Testament. No. It says always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. That's very different. 
right? That's very different. I think a lot of times when we think about this idea of evangelism, you say, I could never stand up and preach. I could never walk up to someone and explain the New Testament to them or what Jesus did. And I actually don't think that's it at all. People would love to hear about the hope you have. I don't care, I don't care what, what they believe. I don't care what you believe. People want to hear about the hope that you have. And I think that's um, a way of creating um, curiosity. And so if you're an evangelist, let's keep asking people to pray for us, for opportunities and for clarity. For the rest of us, are you ready to answer people's questions about Jesus? Not that you'd have it all together, but that you'd actually have the ability to say, here's the reason for the hope that I have, which would imply what? That you and I have lives worth questioning, right? Here's my question. Do you live a questionable life? I mean, honestly, does anybody ask questions about the way that you live, about the way that you act, about the way that you spend your money, about the way you spend that your time? If, if you and I um, live in the city and we, we spend the same amount of money as everyone else and we take the same vacations and if we have the same views and if we live the same way and if our life looks like everyone else's, then how could possibly someone ask us questions and be curious about us? I think what Paul is ultimately doing here is he's saying, um, live a life that invites questions about who you are, that grabs people's attention so that they can begin to say, there's something different about them. Let me just give you, I don't want to give you a lot of, like, I want you to think broad here, but um, if, we're, if we're talking about living peculiar lives, let me, let me tell you one of the strangest, most amazing things that you can do. Next time, next time you go to lunch with someone, buy their lunch. Don't, don't preach, don't do any, just buy their lunch and that's it. They will be blown away. This guy right here, he always buys my lunch. And I love you for that. Thank you. It's, it's crazy. I'm like, why is he doing that? He doesn't have to do that. I can buy my own lunch, right? But it, it's just a way of piquing someone's curiosity. No agenda whatsoever. And just say, I, I just enjoy being around you. I want to buy your lunch. Do that and watch what begins to happen. Leslie Newbegin says it like this. We must live in the kingdom of God in such a way that provokes questions for which the gospel is the answer. That's slow. That's slow work of building people's curiosity, and we're just leaving space for people to be curious so that eventually we can say, the hope that I have is found in the person of Jesus. And if you're here today and you're saying, that's why Christians do evangelism, I want you to hear, it, it should be so carefree and agendaless because all that people that, that believe in Jesus are trying to say is, this is helping me. This is doing a work in me. And I just wanted to share that with you. So let me give you this last part, right? That's peculiar presence, living a questionable life. What's the second one? Faithful witness. Faithful witness in this phrase, come and see. Come and see. So if you, if you have your Bible, just really quickly turn it to John 1. So John's gospel opens a little bit different. Most of the gospel writers start with like Christmas, um, the, the birth narrative. John 1 just opens up and it's like, Jesus has come in the flesh, truth and grace. And then all of a sudden, their narrative picks up with Jesus' cousin, John. Um, John the Baptist, um, which is a little bit strange because um, John the Baptist is not the author of John's gospel, and he's not also not Baptist, all right? That didn't happen until later. So he gets his name because he baptizes people. And so one day, um, John the Baptist is standing in the river. He's baptizing people. And in John chapter 1, I think it's, uh, if you want to look, it's starting in verse 36. Um, he's standing next to the river with two guys, Andrew and probably the other John. And this is actually really important. It's the other John who's actually the writer of it. And if you read the passage, um, you're, you're going to see phrases like, um, 
look the next day it was four o'clock in the afternoon and you're like whoa 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 like what are, what are all these like details john is probably the one writing meaning he's saying i was there like i i'm actually i actually penned this and i saw it with my own eyes and so jesus is walking by and john says look the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world and he's he just starts ranting about jesus and john the baptist is a weird guy he's always telling people um, like about hell and like to repent and all this stuff. It's a crazy message. But basically, he points at Jesus and says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, I know he's my cousin, right? Like, I know he's my cousin, but like, he's the one. Like, I promise he's the one. And this is what it says in verse 36. The next day, John was there again with his two disciples, probably Andrew and John the writer. When he saw Jesus passing by, he says, look, the Lamb of God, when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. What is John saying? John is saying, look, the Lamb of God. He's saying, go follow him. Like, he, he's the one, right? And um, let me reframe this a little bit. Um, this, is, this is very literal and practical. I don't think that he's saying follow him in a spiritual sense. I think he's saying follow him in a practical, literal sense. Stop following me and start following Jesus. And then what does Jesus say in response? I love Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? Like, Jesus has some stalkers now, right? What do you, what do you want? This is a great question. This is actually, to me, the first question of um, what we call discipleship. This is the first question of discipleship. What is it that you really want? What, why did you come here today? What, what, what is it that you really want from Jesus? What is it that your heart so burns for and, and desires? And I think Jesus, I think he honors you so much in that. If, if you would come here and you would say, you know what, I just, I just want some more financial security. I just want, I just want to be in a relationship. I, I, I just want, I, I feel so lost. I, I just want to, to not feel lost. That's the first question of discipleship. Jesus is so good. He says, what do you want? And look what they say. Where are you staying? <laughs> so creepy. Like, what, what are you trying to do? Where are you staying? Like, what, do you, what do you want from me? And they're saying, we want to follow you. Right? We, we, we want to follow you around. Our, our friend John has been talking about you, and we know he's your cousin, and we know he says crazy stuff, but he says that you could be the one that could connect us back to God. We're not really sure what we believe, but we're actually coming to follow you. And I love that they don't, they don't have all the answers yet, right? We don't know if we believe all this stuff about you. We don't know if we, you're the one that can connect us back to God. We don't have all the answers, but could we just come follow you and find out for ourselves? Could we hang out with you for a while, and then after a while, we can decide on our own who you are? John says you're something special, and we want to find out for ourselves. Why did they start following Jesus? Andrew and John followed Jesus, not because they believed everything about him being the Son of God, the Lamb that takes away the sins of the world. They followed Jesus because the most influential person in their life, John the Baptist, said, stop following me and go follow him. What does Jesus say? This is the phrase. Verse 39, come, he replied, and you will see. Come and see. Come and see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and what did they end up doing? They spent the whole day with him, and it was about four in the afternoon. They just linger with Jesus because Jesus said, come and see. So this is early in John's gospel. Small church, Jesus has two followers. How did he do it? He piqued people's curiosity. They were just curious about him, right? And then somebody else said, go and check him out. Come get to know me. 
Come see how I live. Come see how I speak. Come see how I engage with the world. Jesus never recruited people to follow him without first piquing their curiosity. And he's not demanding belief in this moment. He isn't saying, come and accumulate knowledge with me. He's saying, just come and exist with me. And if you're new to Christianity or you're, you know, you would say, I'm just trying to figure some things out. Let me just say, say other, other religions, like a lot of denominations even do this. They say, change and then you can join us. Get your life figured out and then you can join us. Believe what we believe. Do the things that we do. Dress like we dress. Think like we think. Change and then you can join us. But Jesus is not doing that. He's simply saying, come and see. Jesus is so gentle. He doesn't force himself on people. He's so gentle. He just says, I'll answer your questions and then just exist with me on the road. But it keeps going. This isn't done. Verse 40 says this. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who had heard what John had said and had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Simon, John and I, we were hanging out by the river. Crazy John the Baptist guy. We, we started hanging out. He told us to follow Jesus. Simon, I think he's the one. I, I think he's the one that, that we've been waiting for, that the Old Testament talks about. I think this guy can help us. You have to come and meet Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. Peter, the rock on which the church will be built. And boom. Jesus has three followers. How did it happen? Andrew came and said, Peter, you've got to hear about Jesus. Come and see. And then Jesus, I love that Jesus gives Simon the nickname, right? Who do you give nicknames to? You give nicknames to your friends. And, and, and Jesus' invitation is to just come and see. Come and join into friendship and into community. Passage isn't done. Verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Four followers. This church is exploding, right? Keeps going. Philip found Nathaniel and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Jesus, the promised one to come, the, the one that can forgive you. The one that, can, that, that, that sits on the throne in the end of time and says, Behold, I'm making all things right and new, and you, and you could follow him. And then, of course, I love this. Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth, right? New Jersey? Can anything good come from New Jersey? I think it can. I, I believe it can. Um, and he just says, Come and see. And actually, that is funny, but it's also a really good note. Um, the Old Testament um, prophesied that the... Um, um, that the Messiah, the one to come, was going to come from Bethlehem. And here, Philip said to Nathaniel, he said, um, the Messiah is from Nazareth. And he's like, well, it doesn't compute then, right? Then, it, then the, the Old Testament is wrong, or, or what you're saying is wrong. And I love that Philip doesn't say, well, we'll, we'll wait and see. You'll, you'll see that he's actually from Bethlehem here. He doesn't say, like, well, I, he, all he says is, come and see. Come and see. He doesn't have a response or some argument. He just says, come and check out for yourself. Come and see Jesus for yourself. I'm not going to argue with you, but I'll just show you, and you can ask him. And Nathaniel, we learn, follows, and Jesus has five followers. Here's why I tell you this story. It goes on. You can go read the rest. What do we do when we discover something meaningful or significant in our lives? We tell people, right? If you walk around this neighborhood with me, I'm so annoying. I'll be like, 
best tacos, Yellow Rose. You got to try the cream puffs at Butter Dose, solid coffee at La Cabra, Tompkins Square Bagel, long line, always worth it. That's what's going to happen if you walk around the neighborhood with me. I'm just going to start shouting out food to you because I got that little like evangelist edge in me, right? That was a great phrase. You can put that in a profile or something. Why? Andrew goes to Peter, Philip goes to Nathaniel, and and all they're actually ultimately saying is, I found something meaningful in my life. I found something that's working. I don't have all the answers. It's working for me. Would you be open to it working for you? Their goal is not to convince someone. Their goal is not to convert someone. There's very little pressure in these passages. They're not trying to change them, lay a guilt trip on them. The goal was simply to let them experience someone, right? So often, we're like, let me impart this information on you. And that's, that's, that's fine, but what's better than giving someone information is letting them experience a person. Peter and Philip followed Jesus, not because they believed everything about him being the son of God, but because the most influential person in their life said, come and see. And, and honestly, this is just absolutely genius. Jesus is a genius. He's like the originator of the pyramid scheme, all right? Jesus has this amazing plan. It's not this big business model. It's a person. And he banked the whole future of his organization, the church, on people saying, come and see. And, and I'm sure these guys are thankful, right? It, all, all they've basically said is like, hey, I, I found this. It's working for me. Come and see. Um, the, 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 the church word for this is evangelism right? It, and we make it so complicated, and like there, like I was pulling up charts and strategies this week on evangelism that I learned in college, and I read this passage, and I was like, how about Jesus' strategy? Like, how about that as a way of making disciples? And so this is the kind of church we want to be. We, this is the kind of church we want to be. We want to take Jesus very, very seriously when he says, I want you to make disciples. I want you to teach obedience. I want you to baptize people. I want you to go and, and, and to remember that his very presence is going to be with us. And it's as we wrap up this Good News Gospel series, I, I, want, I want you guys to hear this from me. This should be the heartbeat of our church, that we would be a church that is multiplying, not for growth, for, you know, fun. Growth actually just means more chaos in an organization usually. Um, but, but what actually we want to do is, is really listen to the person of Jesus. Let's really be a church that prays for our friends in humility, that has genuine care and integrity, and that we would be rooted in the gospel, and we would take Jesus seriously. Let's pray.